Well, good morning, church and friends and guests. Happy Sunday. We are gathering this morning for worship, and it's great to see you here in person. And also, we extend welcome to those of you who are joining us online for worship this morning. We gather today as a church among many other churches worldwide, and we gather in the name of the original church builder, Jesus Christ, who promised to build up his church here on earth. And we gather hoping and trusting that all things really do hold together in Christ, who is our head. And so I invite you to join with me in a call to worship that we'll share together on the screen. Would you please stand if you are able? And we'll do this responsively. It is from Colossians chapter 1. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things in earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Let's sing together.
Would you pray with me? Holy God, we confess that we have not lived as you taught us. We have put our longing for money and success or happiness above our desire for you and your kingdom. We worry about what others will think, what we wear, how our reputation can be polished. We make idols out of the winning record of a sport team, the next promotion at work, the perfect family, the cleanliness of our house, or the latest technology. We are careless with our words, saying things we don't mean, things that are hurtful to our children or friends. We are so busy with our lives that we forget that our very breath depends on you. While we waste time on meaningless things, we fail to recognize moments of grace, moments of abundant grace throughout our day. We indulge in hateful thoughts against those we feel have offended us, and we are indifferent toward the suffering in our own neighborhoods. We forget that all people bear your image. In an effort to look better, we compare ourselves to others. We take advantage of weakness and are passive in the, in the face of injustice. For personal gain and reputation, we lie blatantly and we lie by omission. We would rather blame others unjustly than accept fault. We long for what is not ours and begrudge the blessings of others. Forgive us for thinking of ourselves before others and before you. Free us from unreasonable expectations of ourselves and other people, from the need to compete, from the loss of perspective, so that we might glorify you in all that we think, say, and do. By your word and your spirit, transform us that we may love you and one another. Help us to look to you and look for you rather than evade you throughout the day. Conform us to the image of Christ that we might delight in you always and be steadfast conduits of blessing rather than remnants of the curse to one another. In Christ our Lord, amen. Hear these words of assurance from John chapter three, verses 16 through 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it is because of God's love shown forth in the son, lavished upon us through the son and poured into our hearts by the spirit of God that we find forgiveness of sins, abundant grace and mercy that not only meets us in our sin and brokenness, but transforms us. Through Christ, we are set free to love and serve God, one another, and God's world. I search the world, but it couldn't fill me. Men's empty praise and treasures that fade are never.
and sisters, it is because of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we have peace with God and with one another. The peace of Christ be with you. Let us greet one another with a sign of peace. Well, good morning, one and all. The Lord be with you. My name is Ross Dealman, one of the pastors here at Fellowship Church, where together our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. We're glad for the many of you who are already living that mission with us and continually invite more and more of you to join us in doing so. If you're new, we'd love for you to make yourself known uh, either personally by greeting uh, one of the pastors or anyone else in the congregation or visiting also our welcome desk in the back. One of the ways that we do this uh, for ourselves as the community together is also to care for one another. And so I draw your attention to the back of our bulletins where we have a list of celebrations and concerns that we keep in prayer together. And I do want to add one that I just learned of from this past weekend, we extend our sympathy to Brian Douthit uh, and family at the passing of his mom, Peggy, on Friday this weekend. And so we extend our sympathies. Uh, details for the upcoming services are still pending, so stay tuned for that. For now, you can simply keep the family in prayer and send cards. Um, other announcements for our life together uh, is a series of things for upcoming dates, okay? So you might want to pen out for this if you want to keep track of some things. Uh, but uh, a few things that are coming up, starting next Sunday, which is the 28th of August, after the second service at approximately 11.30 a.m., we will have a prayer walk for Hand to Hand and Kids Hope. It'll meet right at the bell, which is on the south side of the building, outdoors. There'll be a gathering there to be praying for these ministries, and then it will be a walk over to the school next door, where we'll continue in prayer for teachers and administration and staff and students as well. So 
do mark your calendars to join in on that prayer walk next Sunday after this service. The Sunday after that is a holiday weekend, September 4. We're planning to be outdoors, weather permitting, and the service is at 9.30 a.m., okay? Take note, that's a different time, 9.30 outdoors, one service for us churchwide, and if weather is inclement, of course, we'll move inside, but we'll keep the time. So uh, mark out that, bring your chairs and sunglasses or whatever else is appropriate. We look forward to a good time of worship outdoors on September 4. Following that, September 11, we're calling Kickoff Sunday for our life together here at Fellowship Church. Kickoff Sunday, we'll have our normal worship services and an after party, a bunch of activities, and our first uh, table-to-table in actually quite a while. Table-to-table is something we've done before where we gather in worship at the communion table, and then we gather after worship at the lunch table. And uh, so we'll intend to do that on September 11 as well, so mark your calendars and plan to join us and invite a friend, of course. And then after that, the Wednesday, September 14, is our first Wednesday night community night, which includes also a meal. We like to eat together. We eat with the ones we love, right? That's what we do. 5.45 is the meal, and then afterwards from 6.30 to 7.30 is uh, activities for all ages. So once again, you and others are all welcome to join us for that, the first community night, which follows every Wednesday night afterwards. I think that's our calendar details, but I have one last thing, and it's a question for Jess here. Jess, do you have a favorite instrument this morning? Yes, definitely the organ. (laughs) But I thought you liked all instruments, Jess. Okay, yeah, that is a fair point. I'm not playing favorites. I love all of them and all of them together. I want it all. Uh, But the organ was broken, and it is now fixed, and Lori is playing it this morning. Yes. What was lost is found. What is dead is now resurrected. This is really, really good. Graves in the gardens. (laughs) It's a a wild story, so how much time do you have? Yeah, the short version, please, but it's interesting. (laughs) Oh, but I am so excited. Uh, So several weeks ago, we had a power outage, and the organ stopped working after that, so we think it must have been connected. Um, And getting an organ fixed that is made in the Netherlands is apparently really hard, so we had a dude come over from Wisconsin, like took the ferry, It was so fun. (laughs) Crazy story. But he fixed it. We are back in business, and we have a direct line now out. He fixed something else that would allow us to have the online feed, the organ going clearly and cleanly there. So it's just, it's a good day. That last detail means very little to most people, except Except that it's awesome, right? They just don't know what it means. It's really good, right? If you don't understand it, trust us that it's a really cool thing that's coming. And so Mm -hmm. we say, thanks be to God for the organ repair guy, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I just want to take that as a moment to remember together with you that Uh, Our fellowship ministry fund supports all of these various things. When we give uh, to the church here, it includes not only support for our global mission projects, not only support for our local mission partners, not only support for our ministry to children and youth and so much more, but it also helps cover the roof over our heads and the organ when it breaks. And so if you have not yet partnered with us Uh, financially, we would love to invite you to do so perhaps for the first time. And you can do that online relatively easily by following links on our website or even in the worship uh, that you're gathered in right now. Uh, And also you can give in the collection bowls at the back and entrance of the sanctuary. With that, I invite you to continue in worship with us this morning. Please stand and let's sing together. 
be with you, Fellowship Church. Let's pray together. Come, Holy Spirit, come. We pray that you might be with us as we open your word and consider what it might mean for us today. Thank you that you have revealed yourself, O oh God, uh, in these words, but also by the power of your Spirit and in your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We'll be reading from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Uh, if you'd like to follow along with the Bibles that are in the chairs, it's on page 798. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of death will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. 
We had just wrapped up our meal at El Rancho Mexican restaurant. My nephew was sitting on my lap as my food was digesting, you know, because they keep bringing chips and salsa at this kind of restaurant. And being a cheap Dutch guy I am, I just can't stop. So I had to eat them before my burrito meal and after my burrito meal. And as I prepared to roll out of the restaurant, uh, we sat there. We were with a larger group, so we're in one of the big tables, you might say, in the middle if you've been to the restaurant, which means you're facing all the booths that surround you. And my chair looked directly at a booth that was sitting right in front of me with a mom and a dad and then two seemingly teenage daughters or at least friends. As they were waiting, the girls were playing on their phones, mom and dad were chatting, and then the food arrived. The mom and dad grabbed hands under the table and closed their eyes and bowed their heads and offered what seemed like a prayer. The teenage daughters, on the other hand, or girls, kind of looked around, what is happening? Should we do this or not? We don't know what they were thinking, but they were certainly a little more sheepish about offering this prayer in a public place like El Rancho. And finally, towards the end of what seemed like the right amount of time, they kind of quickly closed their eyes and offered the prayer as if they wouldn't get caught by their mom and dad and pop their heads up as well around the same time. It had me wondering, what does prayer look like for those two girls when they're not at El Rancho? Do they pray at home? Do they go to church? Is it just that they're at El Rancho that they seem a little sheepish, maybe a little embarrassed that their parents are praying or maybe even a touch ashamed? To reiterate every realtor everywhere, I think location matters. And location certainly mattered for these two girls. What's the phrase again? Location, location, location. Isn't that it? I mean, imagine a communion service with me for a moment. Let's just say you are gathered for communion and the host brings out the elements. But instead of what you might say is typical elements, this host grabs a juice box of grape juice and starts to squirt it without the straw in it into a solo cup and then sets it on the table and then takes a box of leftover crackers and dumps the the cracker fragments on a a paper plate and makes sure that the big ones are, are cracked into small pieces so that everybody gathered can have at least a taste of that cracker. I mean, if that communion service was being offered here at this table on a typical Sunday, you'd be like, who screwed up? Don't you realize that DeBoer is closed on Sunday, people? You got to go get your bread on Saturday. And Pastor Ross, you can't bring red wine for communion on Sunday. You need the grape juice. Did you forget to bring the grape juice? Somebody run to the kids' zone and grab a juice box. Who screwed up? Maybe you'd be thinking a little bit of judgment in your heart about somebody not taking this meal quite um, sincere enough or have enough respect for communion. But if those exact same elements were offered by a priest, let's just say, gathering his scared and hopeless, maybe even helpless flock in a subway uh, in Kiev, Ukraine, you would think of that meal even more poignantly, even more significantly, because he was gathering his people with what they had available to them to remember God's great promises. Location, location, location. Or said the way a wise pastor said last week, I think it was context triumphs over proof text every single time. 
which is all to say it's tempting, isn't it, when we read this story of Jesus and Peter and the disciples, to, to jump right to the question, the question that is ours for this morning in our Questionable Life series, who do you say that I am? It is the key question of the text, ultimately, and it's the appropriate question. It's a really good question for us to consider and how we might appropriate into our everyday lives. It's the right thing to do when we read this story because it is primarily a discipleship question for those of us that consider ourselves followers of Jesus. But simply jumping right to the question and glossing over the context or the location of this question, I think we miss some of the significance of Jesus' question for us this morning. We miss the poignancy of what Jesus was asking his disciples some 2,000 years ago because location, location, location. Where did Jesus ask this most significant question of his disciples? Verse 13 says, in Caesarea Philippi. You can see a map behind me of Caesarea Philippi is in the far northern regions of Upper Galilee where that red arrow is. That big picture is just a small part of Israel way up in the farther northern regions of Israel. Caesarea Philippi, a two days walk some 20 miles away from the Sea of Galilee. This is way out on the bounds of Israel. I mean, this is miles, miles, days journey from Jerusalem, the epicenter of, of the Jewish faith. What are they doing way up in Caesarea Philippi? This was, of course, an Israeli land at one point. Uh, it is the region of Naphtali, which is one of the sons of Jacob. It was a land given to that tribe, and it was a, a God place, a holy place. But, you know, as things happen, names change, land changes, who owns it and who's occupying it changes. You know, what was once known as the Rhymink Gladiola Farm is now Fellowship Church. And so, Naphtali, a God place, a promised land place, changed to Caesarea Philippi in the time of Jesus. Caesarea Philippi is literally Caesar, Caesar of Philip, or uh, Caesarville, as one commentator put it, Caesarville of Philip. Not the Caesarea that's on the coast, some 30 miles away of the Mediterranean Sea. This is Philip's Caesarea. It was a land that was given by the Caesar himself to King Herod, and King Herod developed this land and, and kind of created a little bit of a bustle around this place by building an enormous, immaculate, a beautiful temple to the emperor. It was a made of complete white marble. It was adorned with all the gold and all the, all the stuff that would be fitting for an emperor. It was a beautiful place. And soon after King Herod died, he gave it to his son, Philip, who became king of that region. Well, King Philip called in Chip and Joanna to do a little remodeling of the place. It, it gained some popularity, and, and, and re, therefore they renamed the town Caesarea, or the area Caesarea Philippi, Philip's place of honoring Caesar, a nod to the emperor and you know, of course, himself as well. 
Which is all to say, this is not just any town, this is a Roman town, a place oozing with nationalism of, of the Greco-Roman world. It had a temple of marble to the Caesar himself. I mean, this was a, a, an attractional city. This is the kind of place you'd go to watch Fourth of July fireworks. It was a regional magnet for the patriots of Caesar. I mean, this is a worldly place, a place for the rich and influential, a place where uh, lobbyists swindled votes over $1,000 lunches or, or brokers made deals over $10 cups of coffee. This is a place that epitomizes, as one scholar put it, politics as usual. Caesarea Philippi. It is here with the palace in the background, rubbing shoulders with the rich and famous, the powerful and the influential, the epicenter of nationalism and pride for the Roman emperor, that Jesus asked the question, who do you say I am? Location, location, location. This is the only time in Matthew's gospel that Jesus takes his disciples this far north, this far out of the way. He doesn't need to go there. This isn't on the way to anything that would be a normal place for Jews and to, to go. Why does he have to go all the way up there to ask the question? Couldn't he have simply asked them as they walked along from Galilee down south to Jerusalem? Couldn't he have asked them in the, the coziness of, of one of the disciples' family homes as they were eating a meal together? Couldn't he have asked them in the local synagogue with the other faithful gathered together? It's a poignant enough question, isn't it? It seems intentional to me that Jesus took them all the way up there to Caesarea Philippi for probably multiple reasons, but I can think of two that I'd like to share with you this morning. I think the question, who do you say that I am, is a confronting question. It confronts the disciples' allegiances. And second, I believe that this question can be a word of consolation as well. First, I think the question confronts the disciples' allegiances. Interestingly enough, though, I think it's actually in the first question that this confrontation is really kind of laid out because Jesus asks his disciples, interestingly, in the third person, who do people say the Son of Man is? Which would be another way of saying, who do people say that that Nate Skipper guy is? Dangerous question, don't ask it. <laughs> but the disciples' response is telling. They first say, some say you're like John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist, don't you? The guy that called the people to repentance for, for the kingdom of God is near, that, 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 that Jesus was coming in, in the flesh. And he became so popular, he was baptizing so many people that, that King Herod, the same guy, yeah, uh, had Philip, or not had Philip, had John the Baptist beheaded because of basically King Herod's tiny little ego that couldn't handle someone else being more popular than he was. John the Baptist, a prophet who was willing to pledge allegiance to the ways of the kingdom above allegiance to the state. And then they mention Elijah. Elijah, the prophet of prophets, you might say, to Israel. The, the man who uh, called out King Ahab for all those little temples and sanctuaries to the other gods. And because of that, Elijah became known as, by King Ahab, the troubler of Israel. Elijah, a prophet who was willing to pledge allegiance to God above his allegiance to the king. 
And then they mention Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, the one who uh, called out the people uh, or the, the, the temple rulers in Jerusalem for their misallegiances. Jeremiah, a prophet willing to pledge allegiance against the corruption of the religious state at that time. John the Baptist, Elijah and Jeremiah, all prophets, yes, but prophets who are called, who called the people to rep repentance of their misplaced allegiances, of their idols, their misplaced trust in the broken systems of this world. I think the disciples' response to Jesus is telling. There, in Caesarea Philippi, amongst the majesty of human buildings, adorned with worship for their state leader, the disciples revealed that they have a sense of the confronting nature of Jesus' question, that allegiance to Jesus will necessarily confront your allegiances to this world, will confront you economically, politically, and socially. It's only then that after they play their cards that Jesus asks them the more pointed question. Yes, but who do you say that I am? Peter, of course, he speaks up first, and he speaks up, I believe, on other people's behalf, and he says, you are the Messiah, Messiah, the anointed one, the, the son of the living God. You are the one we've been waiting for. You are the one these prophets foretold. And you didn't just come as a prophet speaking God's word. You are God's word, Peter says, and so do the disciples. You supplant the kingdoms of this world. You are the one that's supposed to reign in our hearts. You are the one that we are to follow fully. You're not some schmuck who built temples for himself and for the emperor. You are the king. You are the ruler of our hearts. Peter's clarion response is not some pledge of allegiance in the safety of a classroom. It's not some homage offering amidst the faithful in the temple. It's not some declaration of dependence in the safety of his bedroom. It's a shot against the political bow of the Roman Empire in the public square. And I think it begs the question for us today, too. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am when the political parties of our world beg for your allegiance above Christ? Who do you say that I am when the allure of riches and achievement confront your convictions about family and integrity? Who do you say that I am when you turn on your TV, open the browser, or scroll social media and are tempted to put your trust in the things that bring you pleasure temporarily? Who do you say I am? I was at a church one time that was maybe a little bit more ceremonial in its uh, worship style. And so they had these kind of components of worship that they did every single week that sometimes could feel a little bit rote. Uh, so to interject some personality into it, they had people from the congregation come up and share a little testimony about the significance of that component of the worship service. So for instance, one time someone came up and talked about the prayer of confession and what it meant to them and how they read the prayer of confession that was offered on Sunday throughout the week or something like that. I don't remember all the components, but I remember one component in particular. One person came up and shared about that moment uh, that was the offering moment in his church. And he shared about how every week before he came to worship, he brought a crisp bill from the bank with 
Andrew Jackson or Ulysses S. Grant or Benjamin Franklin's face on it. And the mount didn't matter as much as the faces because for him, the faces represented the kingdoms of this world, power, influence, fame, riches themselves. And when he brought his offering to church on Sunday and placed that bill in the offering plate, it was his way of saying, I put my allegiance to Jesus above the kingdoms and the powers of this world. What I yearn for, what I sometimes get trapped in is, is, is striving for wealth and security. This is my act of defiance by placing this bill in the offering plate. It was his way of giving allegiance to Jesus. It was his way of answering, who do you say that I am? How do you respond to the confronting nature of Jesus' question smack dab in the middle of the locations that you find yourself? Amongst the powers of this world, how do you reflect your love for Jesus in restaurants and stores? How do you remain faithful in the halls of power or in the halls of the office that you find yourself in or the school that you go to? How do you declare Jesus is Lord amidst the streets of the marketplace or on your street of your very own home? I said this question is one of confrontation, but it's also one of consolation. What do I mean by consolation? If we say that location matters and Jesus intentionally asked this question in the shadows of the, the, the uh, palaces built to national leaders in the epicenter of all things worldly and earthly, then Jesus' question could also be in some ways about freedom. Freedom gets a lot of press these days. It's not necessarily a uniquely Christian word uh, in our culture. In fact, today it can be heard and connoted that there's all sorts of things that it doesn't really mean. But here's what I'm wondering about. I wonder if the disciples sensed some freedom from all that was around them when Jesus asked that question. This rabbi that they had been following for months, maybe even years, is asking them this question, who do you say that I am after I followed you? Are you going to choose me or are you going to choose everything that you see around you? I wonder if it felt a little bit like a big deep breath for them. I don't have to envy this world anymore. I'm free to offer my heart to the one who loves me and has chosen to follow, that I've chosen to follow that has chosen me first. I'm free from having to play the games of this empire. I don't have to play the games the same way the empire does. No longer do I have to compete to win the battle of riches. No longer do I have to wear the mask of having it all together. No longer do I have to serve the narcissistic masters of the empire. No longer do I have to place, placate my thoughts to their thoughts. No longer do I have to lust after the palaces built for princes. They were free, free to be the people the king of the universe designed them to be. Free to live in obedience to Jesus, the Lord of life. Freed to see the futility of the temporary riches of this world. Freed to live as children of the Messiah, the anointed King. Who do you say that I am? It's a confronting question to consider, yes, but it's also a word of consolation. Because in responding like Peter, we might experience more peace, more freedom, more consolation from the very, very false scripts of this world. A couple weeks ago, you might know that Pastor Ross and I had the opportunity to serve as chaplains at Camp Geneva. 
We shaped uh, our talks to the campers and then also our, our devotional times with the counselors around the story of the prodigal son. And in thinking of the prodigal son who took his half and ran off and, and chose to be free, I asked the counselors, what do you think freedom is in this story? What do you think Christian freedom is? Some talked about freedom from sin and how we are no longer bound by it. Some talked about the bounds of freedom and how Christian freedom is actually living within the limits and bounds of what God desires for us and that we find peace there. It was a very theological discussion. It was rich, actually, and quite impressive for college students to be thinking this deeply about freedom. But after a while, we came to that kind of lull in the conversation, you know, about seven minutes in, and people were not saying much, and so I was about ready to pray when one student or one uh, college student spoke up and said, I, I, guess, I guess I think about freedom a little bit differently. When I think of freedom, I think of the feeling I have when I sit on the piano bench all by myself and play music, whether it be worship music or, or just chords. When I sit there, I sense a deep sense of gratitude for what God has done in this world and in my life. I feel a sense of awe in God's presence with me and worship and the quietness in my heart that who I am is enough for who God is. I'm relieved in that moment from trying to be somebody I'm not. Who do you say that I am? It's a word of consolation because it reminds us of who we are, of who we don't have to be in light of who Jesus is. There's peace, there's consolation, there's freedom in recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah, that we don't have to save ourselves. Maybe you're like me and playing music and sitting at the piano bench isn't your way of experiencing that kind of peace. Where can the rest of us find and experience those moments? I don't know what would work for you or where you meet God in those kind of sacred spaces, but one thing that I've been thinking about lately in response to this story is, is considering kind of a mantra for the day or a mantra for the week. Maybe you write it down in your journal or type it out on your phone or pray it just silently in your head. But the mantra that I'm thinking about is, I am because Jesus is the Son of the living God. I am freed, forgiven, loved, chosen. Pick your word for the week, for the day, because Jesus is the Son of the living God. Who do you say that I am? Jesus doesn't ask that question to us only in the comfort of the sanctuary with padded seats. He asks that question in the locations we find ourselves in. Maybe this week you need to lean into the confronting nature of the question and consider how your life reflects Jesus as king of this world and king of your own heart in whatever location you find yourself in. Or maybe you need to hear Jesus remind you that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God, and because of that, you don't have to be. You have been set free, freed from the ways of this world, and freed to live as his beloved. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.
friends, in our response this morning to what we've heard. Let's stand and sing together to the only one who is worthy of all of our allegiance.
Jesus asks us the question, who do you say that I am? As you go through your week, may you consider that uh, as a question of confrontation and one of consolation. And that may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you as you go. And all God's people said, amen. Go in peace.